Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm doing great. Hey! And you want to know why? Yeah. I succeeded in a goal. What's the goal? That I have had for myself today, which the day of this record being April the 6th, Put away my Christmas decorations. Hey, good <laughs> for you. Going into the second quarter of the year and those, uh, yeah. just in time for Easter, I guess, huh? My, my goal, my goal was to have them down before Easter and in an absolute Christy first, never done before in my life, I spent the morning putting away Christmas decorations and part of the afternoon filling Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I just thought I'd take advantage of kids being at school and because otherwise you. then you're filling them at night when they're supposed to be in bed, but they might come out and you can't, then you got to hide it and then it's, it's just easier when they're at school. Yeah. I but, get that. Uh, but yeah, hey, Christmas is now officially put away and it's I tucked in. <laughs> Took a while, but we got there. Hey, no judgment here. Yeah. No Look, judgment I, here. I'm almost sad to see it go, um, but I have a feeling it was up so long that when it comes time to putting it up again, I'll be like, so soon? Didn't well, I just haul all of this away? During the... Um, <laughs> I've been trying to come up with funny names for the pandemic. Not that it was funny. I'm not trying to be glib, but some people say like the pandy. I've heard people say, and I was <laughs> sure. just about to say to you, during the panorama ding-dong. But then I realized that's... That's a thing. 
It's yeah. a thing. <laughs> um, not my intention. So I, during the pandemic, I left up some Christmas stuff for over a year. Deliberately, yeah. because I was like, I look at it and it brings me joy and I'm fearing death every day. So sure. Um, and I don't think I'll do that again. I think, you know what, honestly, what it came to for me now, granted, I do have my one spare bedroom here, which is uh, Christmas all the time. Of course. But the door is closed. I'm not seeing it all the time. You know what Correct. I mean? I think it takes yes. away from some of the special magic for me anyway. Yes. Of, of having it up year round. Oh, I agree. Yeah. It, it was still magical in January. And then February, it started to feel judgmental for being up. <laughs> like, it felt like the tree itself was like, <sighs> we've never been out long enough to collect dust before, but okay. Like, it just felt <laughs> like every day it was up, it was mocking me. And then the cats who leave it alone when it's up during the right season, just started gnawing on it. Because they're yeah. like, well, I guess this is for us. <laughs> it's been up long <laughs> enough. So it just started, it turned from like, it gives me joy, I love it so much, and quickly became, this is hell and the nightmare of my life. Of course. And made me feel horrible every single time I saw it. So I think you're right. It, it I will feel joy when I see it again. Um I wish more than anything, though, that I'd kept up the lights. Oh, yeah. I, I would like to just fill my home with different colored uh, fairy lights, if I may. That's non-denominational. That's not yeah. necessarily holiday related. That's just right? whimsy. Yeah. I agree. I would like also each room to be a different color of light, except for one room that's like all the colors. Oh, I like that a lot. I want to get... Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> I want to get crazy. I don't know what age I was last week. Yeah. But I also don't know. I want to get crazy, and I'm meaning with twinkly lights. Um, have I gone up further, or did I somehow regress back? Uh, I think it could go either way, because in some yeah. ways, the older we get, the more we regress, you know? Oh, that is a good point. Now, That's a great point. I was alerted this week to sure. a new retirement community that's being built in California. Not, I don't think near LA, but somewhere in California. Sure. And it is a retirement community being built by the Disney Corporation. Get us on the list. Well, this is what I'm saying. I was like, hell yeah, sign me up. But then I had this moment where when I read, it was like 55 you can come, you can move in at 55. And then I went, that feels soon. <laughs> Doesn't that feel alarmingly yeah, soon? That feels like tomorrow. Because when I then thought about the fact that I know so many 40-year-old men who are dating 25-year-old women, which is a difference of 15 years, it was uh, suddenly felt, you know, like 40 and 55 are closer in age than you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> I even, wish them even all the when best. It's, <laughs> even when it's Disney related, it feels looming. I am still yeah. open to it. Like, look, what am I going to be doing at 55? God knows. You know what I'm saying? I mean, off the top of my head, running your own production company. Hey! And begging me to 
finally stopped suggesting other podcasts for us to do. <laughs> well, That's my listen, hope. hold on. But hopefully I'm too busy uh, writing children's books uh, to suggest other podcasts. I guess what so I that's need to what I put out into the world for us. Of course. I guess what I need to inquire about is can we get a house in this retirement community that has a wraparound porch because I know that that's really of the utmost for you. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I would like that so much. I've never had one. Yeah. But uh I, And I mean, then look I can't believe I'm bringing this up because I promised you ahead of the show that I wasn't going to bring it up, but it does connect to this. And just very quickly, I was reading an article. I won't get into the nitty gritty, but basically it was like I had read an article a while ago that all of us ages, including our whoop whoop, yeah, our flim flam, okay? Our and <laughs> I can't believe you didn't try and schmear and schmogle it and be like, our, <laughs> even our schmaginas. <laughs> You're right. You're very mm -hmm. right. But I, I, I had come across an article and it was basically the quote that haunted me. And this was a medical doctor. A medical doctor said, quote, yeah. If you don't use it, you lose it. And that has, has, I'm shook. I've been shook all day about this uh, because I was like, well, my God, like what? Ha so again, I, when I said wraparound porch, you know, 55, us in this retirement community, I just thought to myself, I was like, that's when I become the Blanche. Oh, yeah. If I'm still unwed at that point, which by the way, statistically speaking, it ain't looking good. <laughs> Oh, and don't I people mean, say, don't people say, don't lose hope, don't whatever. You know what? It's not the worst thing. It's not the worst thing. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, but statistically speaking, I, I, I read another article. I need to stop reading articles, I think is the bigger point. Maybe that will help yeah. my overall mental health. No but articles on the porch. No articles on the That'll porch. That'll be the rule. Yeah. It's an article-free zone. Yeah. If we want news, that's in the parlor. <laughs> on the porch, no news. I can't wait to have a parlor with you. I also love how big do I think these this community like what what kind of retirement community is offering like southern plantation style <laughs> estates from the people like yeah on. yeah look I mean there is a section on the front of my home that I've considered. Should we look into adding some sort of a, uh, like an in like a walled-in windowed style deck? Because I'm like, if if I have a deck on the front of my house, will I use it? No. Uh if it is one of those, like, I could go sit out there to do notes, but like it's raining, but there's a roof and walls and windows and all that. I might. I might like that. I'd like to sit outside without the bugs. Of course. And if that means in a room outside, <laughs> I'm on board. But you'd love this. I'm going to want those windows to be able to open, and that's going to take that price up. Because I'm yeah, going to want to be able to sit out there can you put so a I can open it, open the window, and still get a little touch of the rain while also... I guess I'm just only sitting out there when it rains. <laughs> <laughs> I want 
need to move to Louisiana. What I'm hearing is, is yeah. that Louisiana has a, has a climate and homes that are really uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah, which is amazing. Since I've never been. Yeah. But uh, I went once. Well, that yeah. was, I've told, have I told that story on the podcast? I don't need to get into that story, but I, when I. About the hotel? The, the, the hotel. hotel worker? No. The employee? No. That was like, that was, are you in town for fun? That was Virginia. Yes. Oh, and I was okay. like, so no, sorry. a funeral. And they thought that was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I really was in town for a funeral. It <laughs> was not hilarious. Anyway. Um, no, uh, we'll talk about it later. I was visiting a boyfriend's parents anyway, is the point. Yes. Yes. You know the story. Um, yes. But it's, I mean, it's beautiful down there. It's a completely different world. I'll say that. It feels very sure. like, yeah, it's it's oh. interesting. But anyway. Was this, uh, was this the fart? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm I don't sure think I've told that story on that, the show. Have we? Have we? I, don't I know think you've so. told me, but then I don't remember if we're recording while you tell me things or not. Well, God. the good news is, is that our dear listeners will let us know. Let us know, dear sure. listeners. Did I tell the parent fart story on the show? If you'd like to hear it, let me know. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait for us to forget this. Yeah. So, yeah. And then that, the episode come out more like, hold up. What are they talking about? The fart story? That's I always... didn't mention shit two episodes in a row, did I? No. I did That's not. always my favorite is that we record these and then they immediately leave our brains because we have yes. obviously so much on the go. And then Tuesday morning I'll come and I'll open my phone and I'll just have like notifications or whatever. And I'm like, what in the world did we? Oh, like it's always a fun, fun uh, uh, refresher yeah. on the episode. Now, I just very quickly <clears throat> just for my own. So the article in 1986, an article was written that that said women after 30 had a 20% chance of getting married and women over 40 had a 2.6% chance. Wow, that's a difference. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that is really 1986, slipped. right? <clears throat> that was 1986. So I do think that it has changed now. I do like that the title of this article is Marriage After 40. Not impossible. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, no, I... Uh, I had read this article about it. Anyway, so all, all I'm saying is when you started talking about building this front room in your home, I thought, oh, for me, for me, I have to get my head out of this, out of the space that I'm a spinster. I think that that's part of this. <laughs> it's like the odometer rolled over 40 and I went, sure. well, get the cats in the knitting because I guess it's over. Like, I maybe maybe that's not the best. You know what I mean? How um, old was Clooney when he settled down with a mall? Uh, I know well, it's different for men. It's different for but, men, yeah. But how old was remember. he when he finally took that leap? I know it wasn't his first marriage, but well, that's it was the other his thing first too. In a long time, we're also talking. The statistics we're talking about is for never married before. Oh, interesting. and good news, good news. Uh, a never married white woman who's made it to forty-five. These seem to be up to date st statistics. It's a twenty-six percent chance. Hey. Yeah. That's up like twenty four percent. But get this: a never married black woman, forty nine percent chance. Wow, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Huh. Now, if you've been married before, your chances of getting married again after forty are are much higher. <clears throat> interesting. Yeah. 
Because it's like you've already been married before, so you're like, yeah, I'll give it another go. Like, it's- I think it is, yeah. Huh. I think it is. But listen, 26% better than 2.6. It's gone up. It's gone, <laughs> it's gone up, just like the price of eggs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there yeah, was a- I, I do see quite a lot of, of uh, TikToks and reels involving the insane price of eggs. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Is that like everywhere? I just don't think I've noticed. Uh, I think it depends. For me in a big city, I personally, and I could be completely wrong, I feel like they've always been kind of expensive, like, or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I do see that they are a little bit more expensive, but it wasn't a huge jump. I I don't think here, I think in some places it was a very large jump. Sure. Yeah. But it's an egg. How much can it cost? $10? (laughs) That was... Arrested Development. Thank you very much. About a banana. It's fine. I loved it. I loved it. But anyway, long story short, I'm so chaotic right now. I love that I've talked about how to keep your vagina young, my fear of becoming a spinster, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the statistics on getting married for the first time, over 45. I mean, we've really banged a lot out in 15 minutes. (laughs) Well, I assume... The brain is like the vagina, and if you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> I just think that quote, like, it chilled me to my core. It's horrifying. Horrifying. Like, like, you know, and then it gets into details of what happens as you age, and I'm not going to repeat those here because it's just not worth it, and it's certainly not worth haunting my nightmares about. But sure. the point is, is, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, look, it's it's unsettling. Look, there's a lot of things. I uh, had to do some math the other day, which is already a horror show. Um, But I had to, like, calculate when my youngest was going to graduate high school. Um, And I I don't like to to think about getting into the 2030s, you know? Wow, yeah. But it's, it's not great. Yeah. I hated it. But but it's just, uh, you know, one of those, Christy has to do some quick math because she's quickly thought of a project that would be great, but she has to work out the math so that she knows it's accurate. And what is it? Fucking hanging photos of her children. Like, calm (laughs) down, lady. Because right now, we have two rows. Sure. We've got one from when when they turned one, their first, like professional photo we'll say and then their other photo is their current school photo and i realized my oldest is graduating so i'm like oh well his photo is not going to change that much after that because i don't know how many more photos we'll get um until maybe he's like an adult and then there's like maybe a wedding picture or anything i'm not putting wedding pressure on him he can marry if he wants um not at this age 45 I'm kidding. Uh, but fine. he, uh, I, I just started thinking like it's such a jump to go from one to like seventeen or eighteen in that photo. So I decided I wanted a middle ground. So I did. I had to do math to figure out what's the best middle ground age and grade. And so I've decided I'm going to try and put all their 
I'm, I want to do a third row of a row of photos, and in the middle, I've decided to go with grade four because <laughs> okay. it's not like it's kindergarten is in one and grade twelve is the other. So I had to find a different balance, and I decided <laughs> I'm running with grade four. Uh, my youngest has not got to grade four yet, <laughs> so I don't want to leave a blank. Because then that just looks like a memorial weird thing and I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with it and I yeah. don't like that uh, that vibe. Uh, so I'm going to wait. So in a couple of years, if I still have this desire. Yeah. And if I can still find those frames. <laughs> that's a whole other nightmare. The point is, <laughs> I'm planning a picture wall for years from now. It's... A, a problem and also that that front porch that i would put on again it, it can't be open because i'd never use it right i'm not going to go outside if i'm going to be precipitated on you did say specifically that you wanted to feel the rain on the porch though so I, what if you want to mist like through the screen is that it well that would be nice but then i don't uh, i don't know about leaving the f like furniture out there and I don't want to get, like, too rained on. I want to be able to smell the rain, though. <laughs> <laughs> Look. I, I want to be able to smell the rain. Who are we? <laughs> You're literally <laughs> like, like one of those from... medical beagles that just wants to smell the wants rain. To touch grass for the first time. <laughs> oh, my God. The two of us. You're Googling... <laughs> Age ages to make a photo project. That sounds beautiful. I'm Googling how do I keep my vagina young? I mean, it's <laughs> there's a very specific demographic of, of people that are listening right now that are really laughing, and the rest of the ages are going, What is it? <laughs> what has happened to these two over the last few mm -hmm. weeks? And I can't answer that question. Oh, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. What I like is though the younger <laughs> side of the listeners are going, oh Jesus, is yeah. this what we have to look forward to? Yeah. And then the older side is going, it's okay, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> or they're just getting started. <laughs> yeah, I think there's it a real, go, they're just getting started vibe. That's the thing. Oh, I truly believe this is the beginning of our end. Like, I think this is the beginning of us just fucking nuts. Did you know that perimenopause apparently starts between 40 and 44 in women? Get the fuck out. I was like, that's a that's rude. Drew Barrymore. I saw that clip. See? This is terrifying. <laughs> she had it live on the show. She had her first hot flash live on her show, yeah. Oh, this is terrifying. But how old's Drew? Isn't Drew 50? I want to say 40. Eight? Oh, that's too close. This is even closer than the 55 retirement home. Yeah, oh, this is... No. She's 48. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Listen, aging is a privilege. I truly believe that. Of and, course. And, and I welcome the, the privilege of, of all of the things. Sure. But what I want to say is this. Aging to a certain point in your life, it's like, oh, okay. Little changes. It feels yeah. like, I'm going to say, especially for the ladies, yep. it feels like 
you hit an age in your 40s and then all hell breaks loose. Like it's like it yep. doesn't feel it feels like aging is kind of like a steady. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, OK, we're chugging along. There's little differences. You know, my knees kind of hurt a little bit more like, oh, I, you know, I can't eat, you know, the same amount of dairy I used to, whatever. And then it's literally like your body just turns on you. And that's fear. I fear that. I don't fear the aging as a concept. Like, again, I, I'm, I'm grateful to still be here deeply. But I I do fear these kind of like wild, <laughs> like she couldn't continue her job. That scares me. Like in the moment she was like stripping off, like, oh my God. Like, and it felt very um, unsettling to me. <laughs> Is it as unsettling as the fact that I'm going to suggest a perimenopausal podcast <laughs> as we're going through? <laughs> oh God, oh. look. Uh, Drew could be a dream guest on the perimenopause podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, oh, well, there's a there's somehow a a pun in there. Like I God, I don't know. I haven't had enough time with it yet. Because all you're gonna get the presses, it, we could call it that. Oh. oh. <laughs> I like that a lot because all I could think of was we're going to take a Perry many pause. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll I love be it. Right back. Oh, boy. That's. Oh, listen. You don't need that. You know what? This show is going to become that in a year. <laughs> Give it a year. <laughs> hey, mark this down. Save this clip. And then in a year, remind us where yeah. we were. Oh. Yeah. You know what? I think. I think I should go back. I don't know when I'll have time to do this, but I should go back and take a clip from like the beginning of like the first episode and then like episode 25, episode sure. 50, episode 100, just to watch us slowly unravel. Well, it's like, <laughs> have you ever watched any video footage of you from, not as a child, because as a child, your voice is obviously going to be different. But when sure. I look at, when I look at clips of me, even from the beginning of Superstore, my voice is different. Like, sure. Super Fun Night's a better example. I, I, like, my voice is kind of more up in this range. Like, it's like, I, I do love the idea of, like, an early clip of us and then a later clip of us. And it's like, we've gone from this to talking like this. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I feel yeah. like that's a thing. Like, I truly believe in that first episode, you were probably like, how you doing? And I was like, I'm great. And now I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I somehow went from Piglet to Eeyore. I was just, just... going to say Piglet to Eeyore. Oh, my God. What yeah. a gift. Well, yeah. listen, speaking of uh, Piglet to Eeyore, that's not a transition, Lauren, because it doesn't connect. What you drinking over there? That's literally where I was going with it. <laughs> I love that you were trying to make it like an ass to ass, but Piglet to Eeyore. <laughs> Never. They're innocents. Nope. They are. They are. Uh, I, of course, have a water, and I, I'm doing a Mike's Red Hard hard Freeze? Red Freeze? Fuck. What are they called? I should not have put it in the... I love this for you, because I want you to know, oh. I am on my second Lime High Noon. Hey. And it's been a real long time since I got slurry on this show, and buckle oh, in, sure. because it may happen. Uh, well, my plan was to do the adult store, as I told you, the liquor store. Oh, uh, right. Haven't gone yet. Wow. Just haven't gone. Uh, because I've had a week of just, God, I don't feel like doing anything. Uh, I don't feel like leaving the house. 
And then I had this beautiful moment yeah, where I was like, my, my teenager comes home from school. He has a third period spare and he comes home from school and he just like wanders around our kitchen eating random things. <laughs> and I said to him, you interested in anything from 7-Eleven? And he goes, oh, I maybe could. I said, you want me to buy you something from 7-Eleven? And he goes, sure. And I went, tell you what, if you go buy me a Slurpee, I'll buy you whatever you want from there. <laughs> and you know what he did? He got so excited and went, whatever I want? And I went, whatever you want. And he left. He got himself a single drink. I went, you didn't want anything to eat? And he's like, nah. So the next day, he only got a taquito when I sent him again. <laughs> and, then, and then today, don't worry, I texted him before he even left the school. It's so close to 7-Eleven. So he stopped by on the way home. I, I want you to know that in yeah. a town that doesn't have Postmates, you have created your own Postmate in your son. <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are exchanging currency to have a good brought to you. From, I, yeah. And listen, I can Postmate 7-Eleven right now. I love this for you is the point. Oh, I couldn't be happier um, because I also love the other day I suggested it, but I was like, look, I would like to go, but I have something in the oven and I do not have time to go and come back before that's done. When it's done, can you take it out, stir it and put it back in for another 10 minutes? And he went, what's the other option? I went, or you can go to 7-Eleven and I'll pay you to get a drink. And he's like, I will do that option. And I just realized how easy it is. Um, Oh, the e-transfers that he gets sent for me. It's not the point. The point is, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I couldn't be happier with the arrangement that we have. And it's because I learned there's a guy that he works with that when my son is off before this guy, this guy pays him 10 bucks to go buy food at a place and bring it back and deliver it to this guy. And my kid's just like, this is the best thing ever. Because it's a, he's asking him to go somewhere really close by. My kid's just like, this is the best. Why wouldn't I do it? 10 bucks? Yes, please. And now it's costing me nothing extra because if I go there to 7-Eleven on my own, I'm going to get him something anyway. Yeah. So it's not costing me anything oh, extra. Oh, this is win-win. Right? You know, and then maybe, I don't have to leave the house then maybe I'm like he should, days. of course, maybe he should move back into the home when I'm living in your glassed-in front porch, <laughs> in your rain porch. Maybe in my rain him, porch. Maybe we need him to move back in then and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. anyway. Well, listen, we got to get into the yeah. case, but before we do, I know you have an update. Yeah, I do. I have a small update. Sorry. Update. Thank you. Yeah. Um... In the Video Store Murders episode that we uh, did not that long ago, um, it this particular update involves Renee Sweeney. Uh, on January 27th, 1998, 23-year-old Renee was found dead at Adults Only Video in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. She had been stabbed at least 27 times. Witnesses claimed to have seen the killer fleeing the scene and police found a discarded jacket and gloves in a wooded area nearby. So her case remained unsolved for 20 years, 
before Robert Stephen Wright was arrested in December 2018 and charged with the first-degree murder of Renee. He was 18 at the time of the crime. He was denied bail while awaiting trial, and his charge was later downgraded to second-degree murder. Well, that's what happened. We knew he was arrested, and that was the end of that story within that episode. Since then, uh, his trial, which had been delayed multiple times due to COVID and some legal issues, it began in February 2023 of this year. Uh, while on the stand, Wright admitted to being in the store, but said he found Renee injured. Uh, he claimed he was checking to see if she was alive. When two people walked in, he panicked and fled the scene. The jury deliberated for 14 hours, and on March 29th, so only like a week ago, uh, Wright was found guilty of second-degree murder. Wright will be sentenced at a later date, but second-degree murder convictions in Ontario carry an automatic life sentence. The jury was asked recommendations about a sentence. Seven of them recommended 25 years. The other five ranged from, like, saying 10 years to 23 years. Uh, it would be like a life sentence, but you can ask for parole after, you know, so many years. Right. <clears throat> Wright's defense have said they plan to appeal as they felt that trial was unfair. When they asked a judge to allow the jury the option of manslaughter as a charge when deliberating, the judge refused. One of the witnesses who saw Wright kneeling over Renee's body said he saw Renee's head move when they first walked in. However, according to a pathologist, the muscle that controls side-to-side -side neck movement had been severed, so it would have been a virtual medical impossibility for Renee's head to have moved in any way after her death. God. So if so, basically, he's saying there's no way that 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 her head would have moved if she was already dead, unless it was yeah. So I'm. Who knows? I mean, did the guy really see what he saw? We don't know. Uh, then there's the fact that there was no direct evidence proving that Wright had been scratched by Renee in any way. His DNA was found inside the container that Renee's fingernails had been stored in following her autopsy, but the DNA wasn't found underneath the nails, but rather on or associated with them in some way. So it's possible he just got near enough to her hands. It is possible. Maybe he was genuinely close enough to her body to see if she was alive. Right. And maybe he's telling the truth or not. Of course, we don't know. Um, also, in the bathroom at the crime scene, police found prints from a pair of Brooks running shoes. The size could not be determined. And yet, during the closing arguments, the Crown claimed... A footprint found outside the building, which was believed to belong to Wright, was a match to the Brooks print found in the bathroom. It was the first time it was ever mentioned during that trial in the closing arguments and seemed to be an outright lie. Because if you can't determine the size, how can it be a match for another print where you could determine the size? Like, I don't know how it could be an exact match. <clears throat> it's also, uh, yeah, odd that the first time it got brought up was in the closing statements. That That's... Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I see why they're planning an appeal. 
And uh, who knows what's going to happen. But right now, he's just waiting, awaiting sentencing, and he has been found guilty. But the this stuff coming up, it's like, oh, crap. Was he, though? I don't like br- stuff being brought up in the closing argument for the first time. No, and you know how I feel about this, because I yell about it on this show constantly. Yeah. If there is reasonable doubt, you have to acquit. Like, you can't get emotional. You can't, like, want vengeance and justice and all of the above. Sure. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. That's a tough one. I have a kind of morbid and troubling follow-up question. Okay, sure. Trigger warning for the squeamish? Um, Sure. The container containing her fingernails... Yes. Were those her full fingernails or was it like full clippings? I assume because they take clippings of fingernails to be able to check underneath and stuff. My God, what a psycho. I was like, oh my God, they've taken out her fingernails? That's awful. You've been through a fingernail trauma today. (laughs) I love that it's it's on your brain. I immediately was like, why are they doing that in autopsies? Can't you leave them attached? Maybe. And then I thought, oh, maybe it was fake nails. They took off her fake nails. No, you're right. Of course, it was just clippings. What a psychopath I am. Yeah. For those who are curious, last night I was cleaning my garage. That was my first mistake. And I closed my thumb in my car door and it is bad. I'm in an extreme amount of pain. And- Shout out to loyal listener of the podcast, my mother, Mother Laurel, uh, who I was messaging about this today. Yep. <laughs> who, who said to me, hope it doesn't fall off. And I, and the thing is, is she wasn't kidding. And I was like, what? And we had a bit of a troubling back and forth where I did not leave feeling settled that I'm going to survive, <laughs> or rather my thumbnail is going to survive this. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I I am projecting my own trauma onto what you you said for sure. Um, yeah, you heard well, me listen. say fingernail and you spiraled. I spiraled. I, that's the <laughs> truth. And again, the two high noons aren't helping. But um, <laughs> thank you for this update. It's always again we want nothing more than for for these cases for people to get justice. But but I I agree with you. It sounds like there's still more to come in this story because that does not feel like. And again, I want to make it clear, it's not justice if we are perverting the the justice system. Um, Yeah. If there is reasonable doubt, you have to acquit. That's uh, my full belief because, again, it's there uh, to protect us as well as um, for justice to be served. So I hope that there is an update. I hope that either they can come back with some more uh, firm evidence or that uh, if if he's not guilty, then he's found not guilty. Yeah. Oh, agreed. In In an appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's get into the case. Now, this week we're doing something called True Crime Canada, and I could not be more excited about this because this is a Christy curated episode of the show, which are always my favorite episodes because she does such a damn good job at putting together all of this information. She takes us on a journey, and I'm sure that this is going to be no different. So let's get into it now. I want to remind people I don't read the synopsis ahead of time. Correct. I, the first time I'm reading it is when I'm reading it on the show, but I yep. did just scan this first line, this first sentence, and it did tickle me. So 
I'm going to try yeah. and get through this without breaking up. Here we go. You're going to do great. <clears throat> Dear listeners, you are in for a true crime treat. For today's episode, Christy has decided to do something that we have never done before. So what can you expect? Well, the answer is a pile of true crime cases. And not just any true crime, but specifically Canadian true crime. And I know you're wondering, what part of Canada would the true crime be from? There are a lot of possibilities, after all. Canada is the second largest country in the world. Well, for the first time in true crime and cocktails history, Christy has compiled one true crime case from every province and territory throughout our beautiful nation. So buckle up as we do a true crime tour across the entire country in an episode that we're calling True Crime Canada. <laughs> See? You made it? What a gift. <laughs> and what a joke. This started out as a I have a little extra time. I'm going to go hard and try and compile an episode uh, for Patreon. And then it got away from me. <laughs> and ta-da! <laughs> turned into a full episode of the show. I love it. Oh, it is what it is. So, as I tend to do in these compiled episodes, I have chosen smaller cases that don't tend to have a lot of information available um, because we don't tend to do this sort of um, case in a regular episode. And as always, some cases will get talked about more than others simply due to the amount of information available. And disclaimer, this episode will contain mentions of suicide, sexual assault, substance abuse, and descriptions of graphic violence. So trigger warning for those who need it, and my apologies in advance for any sort of mispronunciations. I am doing my best. I'm going with what Google and pronouncenames.com has told me. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's, well, that's how, the, that's how it sounds every time at the beginning of those videos. Anyhow, so we are going to work our way across from... Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic, starting in the Yukon. Amazing. Which I don't believe is a word I've even used on this show before. I like it. So there we go. Angel Edna Karlick struggled in her early teens, spending some of her time living without housing. But Angel turned her life around thanks to the Blue Feather Youth Center in downtown Whitehorse, Yukon, where Angel eventually got a job. She had also recently earned her high school diploma when she disappeared on May 27, 2007. Police searched for Angel in the White, House, White Horse area, as well as in British Columbia and Alberta, but they had no luck. Then months later, on November 9th, a hiker discovered Angel's body in a wooden, wooded area on Pilot Mountain near White Horse. Angel Carlick was just 19 at the time of her death. She was described as a caring person who always had her friends' backs and a bright young woman with a bright future ahead of her. While Angel's death has been ruled a homicide, the pathologist was unable to determine her cause of death. It is unknown whether Angel died in the area where her body was found. Forensic teams, including a police dog, searched the area for evidence and police conducted door-to-door -door interviews. A helicopter was even used to photograph the scene from the air. 
Sadly, Angel's mother, 51-year-old Wendy Carlick, and her friend, 53-year-old Sarah McIntosh, were both found beaten to death in Sarah's home in April 2017. Both women were well-known members of the Kwanlin Dunn First Nation, and Wendy was an advocate for missing Indigenous women and girls. A month after the murders, police arrested 48-year-old Everett Chief following an altercation with another man. Chief's shoes were taken, and when police looked inside, they noticed what they believed to be dried blood. The blood was tested and found to be a DNA match to Wendy Carlick. Police then found security camera footage of Chief and Sarah McIntosh getting into a cab together on the night of Sarah and Wendy's murders. The pathologist stated that, quote, the death of both victims was the result of multiple unlawful act blunt force injuries combined with high blood alcohol levels. Wendy suffered a skull injury, a lacerated liver, and extensive bruising and abrasions, whereas Sarah suffered skull injuries, bilateral rib fractures, and had signs of strangulation. Chief, who had an on-again, off-again relationship with Sarah, was charged with two counts of second-degree murder. He had 56 prior convictions, 12 of which were considered violent offenses, including sexual assault, uttering threats, and assault causing bodily harm. At the time of the murders, Chief was under a probation order that prohibited him from having any contact with Sarah. A psychiatric assessment found that Chief had a traumatic childhood filled with chaos and alcoholism linked to residential schools, which his parents and grandparents also attended. The assessment concluded that Chief was at a high risk to reoffend, and he was psychologically fit to stand trial. Chief pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter and was sentenced to 18 years plus 10 years probation. But as of April 2023... Angel Carlick's case remains unsolved. I just can't even begin to think that family having two brutal murders in the span of a decade. Yeah. That's that's insane and heartbreaking. It is. So the next stop on this Canadian true crime tour takes us to British Columbia on Sunday, October 17th, 1982. Clayton Mark Boussier finished his shift as a dispatcher at Abbotsford Taxi Limited and played a few hands of poker with his friends. Clayton left the game between 5 and 5.30 p.m. and headed home in his cab, which doubled as his personal vehicle. It was described as a Robin's Egg Blue four-door 1978 Pontiac Grand Le Mans. Is it Le Mans? Is it Le Mans? I think it's Le Mans. I'm not sure. Hmm. A few hours later, a cab driver having food at the Highlight Burger Bar in Mission, B.C., which is 12 kilometers or eight miles north of Abbotsford, claims he saw Clayton drive past the diner on Highway 7. The cab driver noted a passenger in the front seat. The diner was rebranded as Rocco's Diner at some point in the 80s, and fun fact... It was featured in the pilot episode of the CW series Riverdale in 2017. Hey! 
Around 7 p.m., the same cab driver saw Clayton drive past again, but this time without a passenger. It is unknown how much time there was between those two sightings. However, this time the witness said Clayton was headed toward the downtown area. Neither Clayton nor his cab have been seen since. Clayton Boussier was 25 at the time of his disappearance. He was described as a Caucasian male, six foot one, with a one-inch scar on his forehead. He was last seen wearing a gray cardigan with elbow patches, navy blue corduroy pants, a black digital watch, and a necklace with a St. Christopher pendant. Clayton was said to be a very conscientious person with a good character. His friends and family say he would never just up and walk away from his life. The day he went missing was the day before his 26th birthday. Mm. A co-worker said that Clayton seemed his usual self that day, laughing and joking, so it seems unlikely that Clayton would just abandon his life. But we, of course, don't know what's going on with Clayton mentally, but I also question where did Clayton go between the time he left his friend's house at 5.30 and when he was seen passing the diner a few hours later? Did he get called back to work? Can the cab company verify that Clayton gave someone a ride or did Clayton drive someone he knew personally as a favor? The guy who claims he saw him, did he? Was Is he somehow responsible for Clayton's disappearance and is hiding in plain sight but claiming that he saw him? Did someone other than him see him? Can that be confirmed? After his disappearance, Clayton's family and friends searched isolated roads, abandoned buildings, heavily wooded areas in Abbotsford and the surrounding area. They even worked with psychics to try and find some answers. Other cab drivers kept an eye out for Clayton's cab. They tried calling him on the radio. But as of April 2023, Clayton has never been found. Which is wild to think of someone just vanishing. Yeah. Those ones always, uh, I, I just, I'll, I'll never get it. I'll never get it. Uh, for case number three of the day, from the Northwest Territories, Mariella Lenny was a member of the Tulita Dena First Nation and had only been living in Yellowknife Northwest Territories for one month when she disappeared on October 6, 1991. She was last seen leaving the Discovery Inn on 50 Avenue, around 6 p.m., alone and on foot. She was reported missing 12 days later. Then on May 8, 1992, Mariella's body was found near the Con Mine Wharf in Great Slave Lake, 3.4 kilometers or 2.1 miles southeast of the Discovery Inn. Mariella's body was partially clothed with just one shoe on, and her face was unrecognizable. She was identified through dental records. Mariella Lenny was just 17 at the time of her death. She was described as pretty, outgoing, and bubbly. Police had released few details, including Mariella's cause of death, which they have only said was a homicide. And while reading about Mariella's case, I found two more that I think are potentially connected to it. The first is Mary Rose Kijuk who was last seen at the Gold Range Hotel on 50th Street on June 28, 1990. She was reported two and a half months later on September 13th. 
Mary was originally from Nunavut, but she moved to Yellowknife to study social work at Aurora College. She was in her second year and had been living at the Gold Range Hotel. Mary was the mother of a four-year-old son named Nathan, who was living with his grandparents while his mother attended college. Mary was said to be pregnant with her second child at the time of her disappearance. Mary was just 24 when she disappeared. Her personal belongings, including her glasses, were left behind. Police knew that Mary was planning to return. In 2003, a bone fragment was discovered at Con Mine, close to where Mariella Lenny's body was found in May 1992. Police searched the area but found no other human remains. The fragment was sent to a lab at the University of Alberta, who determined the bone likely belonged to a petite woman in her 20s. The lab tried to extract DNA from the bone several times, but they were unsuccessful. In February 2018, the fragment was sent to the International Commission on Missing Persons Lab in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The DNA came back as a match to Mary Kijuk. Police have no suspect in Mary's case. Mary's son, who is now an adult, has a daughter of his own who is named after his mother, uh, which I thought was lovely. Heartbreaking, but lovely. Yeah. Um, And then we have Charlene Catholic, who was reported missing in July 1990. On July 21st, Charlene told her aunt she was going to the arcade which was a local hangout located in the basement of a furniture store on Franklin Avenue. When Charlene didn't return home that night, her aunt became concerned, but was told Charlene was likely just staying at a friend's place. When she still hadn't returned by the next day, Charlene's aunt reported her missing. Police were able to determine that Charlene left the arcade with a man and another girl. Charlene's aunt heard rumors that the man in question was Stanley Wellen, who lived on the outskirts of Fort Ray. Charlene's brother went to Stanley's house looking for Charlene, but he was told he wasn't welcome there. Police confirmed Stanley had uh, that with confirmed with Stanley that Charlene had been there, but Stanley claims Charlene left on her own. She was last seen walking along Highway 3 from Fort Ray to Yellowknife around 6 p.m. on July 22nd. She was walking on the side of the highway, halfway between the Ray Access Road and Stag River. Charlene has not been seen or heard from since. She was just 15 at the time of her disappearance. Charlene was described as an indigenous female, about 5'5 or 5'6, 126 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a light blue jacket, a bright pink shirt, blue jeans, and white running shoes. Charlene was described as sensible, reserved, and shy. The fact that Stanley confirmed to police that Charlene was at his house in Fort Ray and that she was last seen walking from Fort Ray makes sense to me. I'd like to know, did they just immediately take Stanley's word for it that Charlene left on her own? Did Stanley or someone he knows follow Charlene when she left? What about the girl? that was seen leaving the arcade with them. Has she been identified? Did she also go to Stanley's house that night? And how old was Stanley at the time? Yeah. I only ask, since Charlene was just 15, and if Stanley was old enough to potentially have his own place, I worry he may have tried to take advantage. 
I couldn't find much about Stanley Wellen. I found an old photo of him and his brother Peter from a newspaper archive. It's a photo of two boys cutting wood in April of 1980. Both appear to be about 8 to 10 years old, which would make Stanley 18 to 20 at the time of Charlene's disappearance, which is concerning when we're discussing a 15-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, So Mary disappeared from the Gold Range Hotel on 50th Street in June 1990. Charlene went missing after being seen at the arcade on Franklin Avenue in July 1990. Mariella was last seen at the Discovery Inn on 50th Avenue in October 1991. The Gold Range Hotel and the arcade are approximately 450 meters apart. And the Discovery Inn is somewhere in between them. And I would say about 300 meters from the Gold Range Hotel. So what are the odds that those three girls would all go missing after being seen within that same few blocks within 16 months of each other? It just makes you feel like maybe all three were possibly taken by the same person. Yeah. And yes, I know that Charlene was seen again after the arcade, but is it possible the people she was seen with at the arcade are responsible for her disappearance? And the disappearance of the other two? Maybe the people had some sort of con running where they picked girls up in and around the arcade. And yes, it's possible that Charlene is not connected to these other two cases. But I believe that Mary and Mariella were killed by the same person or group of people, especially when they were last seen within 300 meters of each other and their remains were both found in the same area. It just feels like too much of a coincidence for me not to be connected. It is also possible that Charlene's remains were put there and they were just never found. Yep. I mean, that's more than possible as well. Well, it was a mine, right? Yeah. Right? We know, if you've been listening to this show long enough, that's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, As of April 2023, Mariella, Mary, and Charlene's cases all remain unsolved. Wow. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, so many things. I mean, I'm every true crime bone in my body is buzzing at the moment. Um, this is wild. Okay, I'm going to go back. I'm yeah. going to go back to case number one. We're going to work through chronologically. Um, I just also want to give you a shout out. Obviously, uh, you always do an amazing job, but obviously highlighting uh, these indigenous women, I think, is fantastic. And obviously, we know, statistically speaking, indigenous women do not get um, those those disappearance cases, just do not get the same kind of uh, coverage in the media, nor do they get uh, necessarily treated uh, with the kind of uh, level of respect you would need um, from a police perspective. So shout out to you for highlighting them here. so, yes, Angel, this first, I mean, the first other thing, too, that just stands out to me right away is, like, so young. I know. I mean, it, I mean the gentlemen, too, but but the, the women, uh, just so young. It's just it's so disgusting and tragic. Um, especially when you hear in, in, in Angel's story that she had had problems. Uh, she had been without housing, but she had was on the up and up. She had turned she her turned life around. around. She'd gotten a yep. job. She was, she was doing, like, that honestly makes me want to burst into tears like that it's 
Look, there's no justice. We know this. We've done this show long enough. There's never any justice. It's all tragic. But there's just something about hearing about like a 19-year-old girl who has has pulled up her own bootstraps and like done this amazing thing that then senselessly murdered. It's just, it's, it's always heartbreaking, but it just stood out to me as being, you know, uh, just wanted to say uh, truly how sad. Um, Also interesting that the pathologist couldn't determine the cause of death. I'm curious about Curious about that body. I, I mean, what what are we dealing with here? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it could be similar to like um, Alonzo Brooks. Yeah. You know, where there was, um, I think animals had got to the, the throat area. So it was, you couldn't it's, determine like maybe yeah. he was strangled, something like that. So it's possible because she was out there for months. Yeah, so unfortunately. It po- it's possible that it could have been, I mean, I need to believe that if if it was some sort of like poison or drug-related thing, that that would have come up in tests. Yes, I would think I, so. So I would assume it's something to do with possibly like strangled or, because I would assume they'd see a bullet wound but again i think I don't that know the they, condition of the body yeah yeah i know i think they would but i mean 2007 is pretty modern so yeah i would say i would think toxicology even on a body i'm not an expert but i think that there's some level of that but yeah no it's a, it's a great point to remember um and for those who are listening that maybe don't know when we're talking about the yukon and northwest territories i mean these are these are north these are very kind of yeah. desolate rural um, it's like Alaska, if that's yeah. more of a touchstone for people, again, who maybe aren't from North America. Um, it's not snow year round, as some may perceive, but it's just very, it's, there's, there's a lot of snow for many months and it's just very desolate. It's, it's sure. not densely populated. Um, just again, for context. Right. Um, yeah, the fact that then there was the second murder 10 years later. It almost feels like it has to be connected. And I'm not saying that there was any proof that it was, but it just seems for two murders in the same family 10 years apart. It just feels poetic in a disgusting way. Oh, I agree. It could be just coincidental, of course, a, a, a tragic coincidence, but I don't know. I don't trust it. And I do just want to say on my soapbox for a moment, uh, if I can, that anybody who has 56 prior charges, many of which were violent crimes, including uh, restraining order against one of his uh, victims, um, there's just it's it makes my blood boil. Yep. It really does. If if we uh, perhaps treated domestic violence cases with uh, more weight, I think that we would save a lot of lives. Um I think that's just a fact. So uh, that's a very tragic, uh, you know, teaching moment um, that, again, it just feels like, what do you have to do? Somebody's been charged that many times and convicted many, many times of violent crimes. What do we got to do? The fact that he then had a psych eval and they said, oh, yeah, he'll reoffend. He'll reoffend, but then he isn't getting life in prison. Yeah. What do we got to do? It, it's, it just makes me crazy. Because that, much like I talk about how important 
the judicial system is, which I do believe that it is. Yeah. Um, this is a case where we know that he committed these crimes. He has been convicted of committing these crimes. Experts have said he will he will offend again in a violent way in in his MO against women. And it's like, oh, yeah, but don't keep him in prison for life. The fact that he murdered two women and only got nine years apiece for their lives. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's misogyny. It's racism. And I stand by that. Sorry. I do. Um, because there's no reason that person should ever get out of jail. You've killed two people. You have a litany of other, of a rap sheet behind that of violent crimes. You're in jail for life. Period. Yep. It's over. That's the only, period. Again, I don't feel guilty about that. Um, all right. Number two, Clayton. Um, this is such a, and I say this, I don't want people to think I'm being glib, but there's like an X-Files element to this in that it's very creepy to me. Like I got chills when you were talking about it because it's very rare for a car to also go missing forever. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I understand yep. that cars can go missing for periods of time. If you're really sneaky, maybe you can hide it or repaint it or whatever, but it's exceptionally rare for someone to pull that off. And certainly 100%. We're talking about 1982. I don't know that we were... You, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just feels wild to me that the car has never been recovered in all this time. Because this is, again, this isn't a... Not a necessarily um, big city in British Columbia. Uh, but even still, the fact that the car was never recovered, and it was such a specific car. It's not like we're talking about Texas and it's like a black pickup truck where... Okay. Yeah. Noted. Is it possible for that to go missing for a very long period? Yes. But this is a very specific painted taxi. It's really recognizable. I'm going to assume that there isn't a ton of them. So again, for that right. to go missing permanently speaks to me to either like a wild fluke, which I think is sometimes also possible in cases, unfortunately, or then I start to think this is a hit. This is this is a premeditated crime where there was a plan in place to repaint that vehicle because I just can't believe if the vehicle remained as a bright blue taxi cab that it would just never be found. That feels I'm going to say it impossible to me. It's just wild we saw no hint of the car ever? Yeah, even now like in all this time, that car has never been recovered because even if they managed, somebody drove that car far away, it would have been in, in the 40 years since this case, 41 years since this case happened, you'd think that there would be, oh, this car turned up somewhere. It's painted like a weird taxi cab. Like, I don't know. It just feels impossible to me. Right? <laughs> So again, I only bring up the X-Files comparison in that it just creeped me out. It was, it just felt like it was like, there's a bigger conspiracy here or something. Um, because it's so odd. And now listen, I did quickly Google while you were talking because you said he was wearing a St. Christopher pendant and I didn't know, I'm not familiar with all of the saints. So I wanted to look up who St. Christopher was. And he is the patron saint of travelers, including motorists. So uh, often they can be hung in a vehicle um, so it also makes sense that if he was a taxi driver, he would wear St. Christopher. 
Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I was just curious about that. Now, case number three. Wild. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think these absolutely must be connected. It feels like a spree killer to me if I'm putting on my um, sure. psychologist slash profiling hat for a minute. Um, it, to that, I would then say this person has absolutely killed again, has absolutely probably moved around, um, could be in various rural areas if if that's where yeah. you're at. I mean – I mean, it's very tragic and dark to say, but um, killing three people within a short period of time and then moving on to the next place makes that feel very plausible. Oh, agreed. And what when you're targeting odds? young indigenous women, unfortunately, and and certainly during nineteen the 1990s, um, oh. you're absolutely targeting a demographic that isn't going to get a lot of attention by the media or police. So yeah, this is a wild one. Again, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck when you were talking about the other two cases. The fact that they were all seen in such a close proximity from one another. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't think it matters that we 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 last saw um, Charlene, I believe it was, walking in another place. After that, it doesn't really matter. Again, the fact that all three of these women were were connected to a very small radius of spot. I mean, I'm curious if the law enforcement ever made this connection. I really want to believe that especially officers working it would notice, oh, hey, it's been a month and somebody else went missing from that same area. And then, oh, hey, a year later. Somebody else has gone missing. Like, I need to believe that officers working that would have pieced that together and at least found it odd. And the thing is, there could be more. There could be other ones who either were never reported missing or bodies that were found that were never identified. There could be so many more that are on that list that we don't know about. I don't want to be bleak, but I guarantee, from a profiling standpoint, if you've done three, you've done more. So I agree with you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Well, listen, I mean, all of this, what a strong start to True Crime Canada. What an episode already. (laughs) My God. Listen, let's hit the can. Let's grab another drink and then come on back because Christy's got so much more for us in store on this True Crime Canada episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. 
It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing True Crime Canada, a Christie curated episode of the show. Where are we headed to now? I'm guessing Alberta. You're correct, uh, but I need to make a pit stop before oh. uh, we get to Alberta. Please. Because I've realized, as of the date of this record, yeah, April 6th, I know sure. it's not the date, obviously, this episode airs, but as of this record date, I have mentioned the holiday that is Christmas. I have mentioned the holiday that is Easter, but I have neglected to mention the holiday that is the birth of one Mr. Paul Rudd. Oh, of course. So shout out, Paul Rudd. I know he's a big fan of the show. <laughs> oh, he doesn't know we exist. I think he'd like us. I guarantee it. I really do. I think he'd I like the vibe. I think he would, uh, oh God, I think he'd just roll with like whatever we say. If we, every time we, we go for like the wildest shit we've ever said. I think he would absolutely just run with it. Yeah. And be like, great. Yeah. And uh, happy birthday, dear sir. Happy birthday to him. Oh, God. I've loved him since Clueless, you know? I do know that. And that is true. You come about this honestly. I do. I do. And he did one uh, with Reese Witherspoon called Overnight Delivery. What a delight. <laughs> Never heard of it. Sounds made up. Couldn't love it more. <laughs> Kevin Smith was a script doctor on it. Uncredited, but yes. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and Paul Rudd just, again, charming, charming, charming. Yeah. He doesn't know how to not to be charming. But now we're going to Alberta. Let's do it. So around 8.45 p.m. on December 30th, 1990, Alfred Palmer and his daughter-in-law, Dolores Palmer, were found lying in the rear entrance of a farmhouse west of Medicine Hat, Alberta. Both had been shot with a 410 shotgun. Dolores was pronounced dead at the scene, and Alfred was airlifted to a hospital in Calgary, where he died from his injuries the following day. Alfred Walter Palmer was born in 1919 to William and Rose Palmer. He farmed all his life and at one point was a counselor with the Municipal District of Cyprus. In 1949, Alfred married Dorothy II, and the couple had a son, Frederick, simply known as Fred, on April 19, 1955. Uh, he later graduated from Medicine Hat College in the trades field. On September 3rd, 1976, Fred married Dolores Eleanor Snortland. The couple had a daughter, Amber, in 1978, and a son, Chad, in 1981. Dolores worked on Alfred's dairy farm while also working part-time at the Seven Persons Early Childhood Services School as an assistant teacher. Fred, Dolores, 
and their children lived in a separate house on the dairy farm where Fred's parents lived. At the time of their deaths, Alfred was 71 and Dolores was 35. As of April 2023, the case remains unsolved. But according to the Medicine Hat rumor mill, it was believed that Alfred was planning to leave the dairy farm to Dolores as opposed to his son, Fred. And to be fair, from the sounds of it, Dolores actually worked on the farm, whereas Fred did not. This, of course, has led some to theorize that Fred may have had something to do with the murders and that his mother, Dorothy, either knew about it or was in on it. But again, there are, those are just rumors. There is no proof of any of it. But if that's true, that Alfred was leaving the farm to Dolores, then Fred would have a pretty big motive, which I'm hoping the Medicine Hat police force thoroughly investigated. Yeah. <clears throat> Fred died in May 2007 at the age of 52, and Dorothy died sometime around 2013. So, if it is, in fact, these rumors... Uh, are true or if there's any truth to them it's just at this point we're never going to get an answer yeah unfortunately if, uh, the truth has died with them because then otherwise what was the motive yeah that's what, a great what question was the, what was the motive for a random stranger to go on a farm and shoot two people well like yeah i mean yeah it feels, I mean, look, there. Ha I have heard of a couple of cases where it's like somebody who has a itch to kill tries to find a very rural place, rural home. Sure. Random. But the, statistically speaking, that is exceptionally rare. That's exceptionally good because that's horrifying to learn. It's not great. Um, oh, there was a documentary I saw. I can't remember the name of it, but it. it I didn't recover. It was awful anyway point being is uh that again that is statistically exceptionally rare so it feels like yeah it's odd to me that there was no other story there i'm just always curious about the 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 justice side right like i'm always curious about like what was the investigation like all those things yeah and i know that we don't know info about it yeah exactly which then raises eyebrows and sure by eyebrows does. i mean my own mm -hmm. you know oh so then we're gonna move next door to my home province of saskatchewan hell yeah george anthony leonard a constable with the regina police service was fatally shot on the night of august 6th 1933 whoa George was riding his bike in the Northeast Warehouse District, which was his beat, as the cops would say. He was riding on the path from Winnipeg Street to the railway tracks when he noticed three men acting suspiciously. George got off his bicycle and told the men to stop. One refused, and when George again ordered them to stop, the man pulled a gun and told George to stick him up. According to a witness... As George attempted to walk away from the man toward a building, uh, the man shot George once in the chest. The man moved closer 
and as George tried to get his gun out from under his tunic, the man shot George two more times in the chest. After the third shot, the shooter ran west toward the railroad tracks, while the other two men ran east. The witness ran to Winnipeg Street, looking for another policeman. George, meanwhile, crawled along the building and managed to get himself inside. A worker ran to help him, but George collapsed. When an ambulance arrived, George was pronounced dead at the scene. During the autopsy, the coroner discovered that one of the shots severed George's pulmonary artery, and another had hit the top of his heart. The day before his death, George had just turned 28. He was the first Regina police officer to be killed in the line of duty. Oh, wow. Thousands of people lined the streets during George's funeral procession. A $1,000 reward was offered for information leading to an arrest and conviction of the three men responsible. That is equivalent to about $23,000 in 2023. Multiple tips came in, and in April 1934, police found and arrested Matt Kowalchuk in Moose Jaw. Kowalchuk, who was an alleged member of the of a gang known for robbing freight cars, was believed to have information regarding George's death. However, he gave them nothing before being escorted to Portage-la-Prairie, Manitoba, where there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest. As of April 2023, George Leonard's case remains unsolved. In May 1934, a bronze plaque was hung at the Regina Police Station in George's memory, At a coroner's inquest into his death, the jury believed that because George's service weapon was located under his tunic, he was unable to defend himself. He was one of the top marksmen in the service at the time. The inquest jury recommended that to prevent further incidents, officers should wear their guns on the outside of their tunics, which the Regina Police Service implemented and have done ever since. Moving on to none of it, or more uh, specifically, it's capital city, Iqaluit. Between 1942 and 1987, the city was known as Forbisher Bay before its traditional Inuktitut uh, name was restored. Uh, Iqaluit became the capital city of none of it in 1999 when the Northwest Territories was divided into two separate territories. Iqaluit is the largest community in none of it, as well as its only city. Hmm. So on May 26th, 1986, Mary Ann Birmingham was found stabbed to death in her own home in Iqaluit. At the time of her death, Mary was home alone, as several family members, including her mother, were in Montreal, Quebec, while Mary's brother was undergoing cancer treatment. Oh, God. I know. Mary's sister Barbara flew back early to check on Mary, and when she got to the house, Barbara discovered Mary's body. Mary was just 15 at the time of her murder. She was described as friendly, personable, and known for her beauty. Members of the community raised $10,000 as a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for Mary's murder. A local newspaper donated space to advertise the reward for several months. In the fall of 1986, police arrested a man named Jopi Atsetik. 
uh, after he stabbed two people, including his own mother. Due to the similarities of the murders, many people believed he was also responsible for Mary's death, and Jopi was later charged with Mary's murder. But when a preliminary inquiry found insufficient evidence to take the case to trial, the charges were dropped. Jopi confessed to the two murders, but denied any involvement in Mary's death. Jopi was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 10 years. There is no public update on him currently. As of February 2022, because that's the closest I could find, he was still in prison. The idea he murdered two people and could get out for parole in 10 years is horrifying to me. Uh, But as of Now, April 2023, uh, the case remains unsolved. There you go. I mean, the listeners do say they often prefer the unsolved cases, which I tried to find. Unsolved was my goal for this whole episode. So just plan for us to all be annoyed. Yeah. At the injustice. Of course. Annoyed at the injustice. There's the new tagline for our show. I like that. So, moving on to Manitoba. Tina Michelle Fontaine was last seen in downtown Winnipeg, Manitoba on August 8th, 2014. Nine days later, her body was found in the Red River near the Alexander Docks. She had been wrapped in plastic and a duvet cover. Tina was just 15 at the time of her death. She was described as a beautiful girl with a big heart who loved school and children. Due to alcohol abuse, Tina's biological mother, Valentina, struggled to raise Tina and her sister, Sarah, so they were sent to live with their great aunt and uncle, Thelma and Joseph Favel, on the Sakine First Nation. Tina seemed happy there. She was doing well in school. But on October 31st, 2011, Tina's father, Eugene Fontaine, was found behind a garden shed. Eugene, Jonathan Starr, and Nicholas Abraham had been drinking for three days when Eugene and Jonathan got into an argument over money. Eugene was tied up, stomped on the head, and put behind the shed where he died from a head injury. He was 41 years old. Eugene had also been battling cancer at the time, and at the time of his murder, doctors had predicted he had only about four months left to live. Oh, God. Yeah. Tina took her father's death quite hard, especially when she was asked to write a victim impact statement for the trial. That was the moment that her great aunt says that Tina started to fall apart. Soon after, Tina's mother, Valentina, suggested Tina join her in Winnipeg. Due to Valentina's history of alcohol abuse, Tina's great-aunt Thelma, who loved Tina as her own, contacted caseworkers to ensure that Tina would be safe in Valentina's care. Thelma was assured Valentina was in a better place. Tina went to Winnipeg at the end of June 2014, but things with Valentina weren't great. At one point, Valentina fell off the wagon and lost custody of her kids, and Tina ran away. After Tina's disappearance, Thelma learned that Tina was briefly admitted into a hospital and was in the custody of a child and family services worker when she ran off. The authorities did not contact Thelma at any point, even after two officers ran into Tina 
the day before her disappearance. <clears throat> Had they run Tina's name in a computer, they would have discovered she was a runaway and potentially saved her life. In December 2015, police arrested 53-year-old Raymond Cormier uh, and charged him with second-degree murder of Tina Fontaine. The evidence against him was largely circumstantial, and there was no forensic evidence linking Raymond to the crime. And on February 22, 2018, Raymond was acquitted. One month later, the Crown made the decision not to appeal. So sadly, as of April 2023, Tina's case remains unsolved. Uh, the one part of this story that did get solved Jonathan Starr and Nicholas Abraham pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Eugene Fontaine, and in December 2014, they were each sentenced to nine years. I don't know why nine years for a human life keeps coming up, but, you yeah. know. Yeah. Oh. So then, we head to Ontario. Around 11 p.m. on July 18th, 2000, Patricia Dawn Reel, known as Patty, and her boyfriend, Peter Seeley, arrived at Patty's house on Hallmark Avenue in Etobicoke. She lived in a basement apartment, which was accessed through the backyard. Without their knowledge, a man followed the couple down the driveway and into the backyard, where he pulled out a gun and shot Patty twice in the head at close range. Peter scuffled with the man, who managed to flee on his bicycle. First responders pronounced Patty dead at the scene. She was 46 years old and the mother to two adult sons. Patty was described as popular, funny, smart, and wonderful. She worked as a telemarketer and had recently started seeing Peter, who friends say Patty was smitten with. The shooter's bicycle was found shortly after the murder. It was a mongoose rockadile with chrome wheel, chrome rims, a racing seat, front, front shock absorbers, and a missing hand grip on the left side. Police were able to get DNA from the bike's handlebars. However, it was not a match to any convicted offender in the National DNA databank. During the investigation, police learned that Patty had been in a long-term relationship with a man named Ronald Harper. The relationship came to an end in January 2000, six months before Patty's murder. A witness claimed to have seen Ronald on Patty's street on the day of the murder, but police were uh, were able to confirm that Ronald was at Casino Rama in Orillia, Ontario, at the time of the crime. Less than a year later, Ronald was found dead in a West End motel in 2001. He left a suicide note, which the police have not made public. However, they have said the note does in fact mention Patty in some way. Interesting. In 2008, police announced they believed that Patty may have been killed by a hired hitman and that Ronald Harper may have hired him. They have not revealed what evidence, if any, they have to support this claim. So as of April 2023, Patty's case remains unsolved. And if that wasn't enough, in 1997... Patty survived an armed robbery while on vacation in the Dominican Republic. She and her boyfriend at the time were chased by a group of machete-wielding men while the couple tried to escape on motorbikes. 
After a 15-minute pursuit, Patty's bike crashed, and she suffered a broken leg and cuts to her face, which required dozens of stitches. Oh, my God. So to go through that and then later be shot, which he didn't take money. He just showed up in her backyard and shot her point blank. I mean, that was that's a hit. Yeah. I mean. So. Heading to Quebec. Paul Frappier was born May 8th, 1977 in Haiti. When he was quite young, Paul's family moved to Quebec, Canada, living in St. Lazare and Hudson before settling in Montreal. Paul struggled in school due to problems with dyslexia, so he left home during his teens. To make money, Paul started playing the harmonica on the streets, where he developed his skills and soon became the best busker, according to a 2005 issue of Montreal Mirror magazine. Paul continued to develop his music, going by the stage name Bad News Brown. He made a name for himself playing the harmonica over hip-hop beats. He opened for artists such as Kanye West, 50 Cent, and Snoop Dogg. Wow. Before before releasing his debut album, Born to Sin, in 2009. Paul also had an interest in film, appearing in the 2003 documentary Music for a Blue Train, and then taking on a significant role in the 2011 movie Bum Rush. Around 10 p.m. on February 11th, 2011, Paul told his girlfriend Natasha he was going out to meet someone. Around midnight, a couple had been who had been walking in an industrial area near the Lachine Canal found Paul lying on the ground at the intersection of Richmond and William Streets. He had what police described as, quote, clear signs of violence to his upper body and was pronounced dead at the scene. Paul was 33 at the time of his death, and the father to a young son. He was described as a loving father, a loving partner, and an immense talent. No motive for the crime has ever been found, and no suspects have ever been named publicly. And as of April 2023, Paul's murder remains unsolved. Wow. So much to get into here. Um, All right, I'm jumping back. Yeah. Alberta. Alfred and Dolores Palmer, this is fascinating, and I know we touched on it in the moment, but it just feels to me, again, there's a real clear motive here. If dad, Alfred, is going to leave the farm, which is surely like a giant thing in this family, um, to his daughter-in-law rather than his son. Now, granted, one could argue that, well, then isn't it technically just still going to the same couple? But I don't need to explain to you that ego and hubris and all of those things can play a big part when we're talking about these kinds of crimes. Um, So that is interesting because, again, it's either the only real options it feels like it is, given the information that we have, is either a random crime or someone in the the family or or someone that the family knew. And when you're looking again at motive – the only real motive we're seeing here, if that rumor is true, feels very clear. Um, the fact that the son Fred and the mom Dorothy have both died since then is very tragic because it feels like 
We'll obviously never get full answers there. But what I find interesting, again, is there was a fair amount of time between the murders and when Fred and Dorothy died. Yes. This crime happened in 1990. They both died in the 2000s. It always strikes me when... Because we see so many cases where families are begging, begging for any sort of justice to be served, begging the police, begging the media, all of the above. And now, listen, I don't know. Maybe they were doing that, but I don't get the impression that they were. So it's like if this was a random crime, don't you think that the family would be losing it, going like, we need to do anything to solve this? Now, again, I'm speculating here. Maybe they were doing that, but it just doesn't feel like, given the information, that that was the case. Um, Yeah, very sad and also, again, creepy. Um, We go to Saskatchewan. George Leonard. The first thing I wrote down was, (laughs) came across three 'er ne'er-do-wells, because apparently I am 95 years old. Um, Yeah. You were going with the time period. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, a quick aside, if I may, again, much like I was uh, trying to give some context for other, for, you know, the non-North American listeners, potentially. Yeah. Um, Now, it should be noted that Moose Jaw, this didn't happen in Moose Jaw. Correct. This happened in Regina. Thank you very much, Regina. Yes. But but it should be noted that there was a uh, very famous mob tie to Moose Jaw Saskatchewan, which was, of course, Al Capone. Sure. During Prohibition, there was the illegal booze running. Yeah. Now, this was a... (laughs) Was there? (laughs) (laughs) They say there was. (coughs) You think saying there wasn't, but... You're saying there's not a lot of proof. I'm saying they're hopeful. You're saying they want a story, maybe? They might. Okay. Well, the point is, is that the tour, the tunnel tours are lovely. So there you go. Yeah. The idea being that there was tunnels from the States into Saskatchewan. Yeah. To, to, to run, run a illegal alcohol. All I'm saying is, is that the first, the first thing that popped into my mind was, was this mob related? Oh. See what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. And then the other thing I thought was... I want to remind you, they said, well, his gun was under his tunic, making him unable to defend himself. So then they started putting the gun on the outside. But I would also just like to offer, in the grand scheme of this show, where we try and come up with any possibilities. Sure. Is it that he couldn't get the gun out in time? Or did he know his attackers? Sure. Because we're basing everything we know on this on hearsay. So... Is it possible that either it was mob-related and he knew those guys and came across some of them and then things went south? Or is it also possible that this was people that he knew that weren't mob-related? Were these other cops? Were these? Is there some other motive that could be possible? Oh, there's also the possibility that the guy that was the witness that told them there was three men... And everything that happened, it's possible that that was really the shooter. That was like, you're looking for three men. Yep. Not me. Yep. Not at all me. No, because clearly I'm talking to the coppers. The coppers. See, (laughs) this is what happens when we go 1930s. Um, Yeah, it's more than possible 
that this witness, it's like, what were you doing in that area at the time? Right? But it was just, we saw this happen, and they went, that makes sense. Yeah. It's odd. Um, all right, moving on to Nunavut. Uh, Mary Birmingham, 1986. This is so tragic. The family goes with her brother to Quebec for him to get his cancer treatments, and she gets murdered? My God. Um, this is another one. Again, it's it's interesting because it feels... It feels like there is a bit of a through line in this episode so far, and I know we're not we're not done yet, but it just is also like, how is it that a 15-year-old girl can get killed in her home? I know. And it doesn't get solved in a small rural area. Like, you would think on paper that that would be easier to solve because sure. we're dealing with a small area, not a lot of people. When you're trying to come up with a motive for that crime, it's a 15-year-old girl. So the motives are going to be pretty, you know, short list and also pretty fucking dark and bleak, right? So it's yeah. – her whole family was gone. This is the other thing. When we often hear, again, the the, the simplest explanation is true, uh, you know, statistically speaking, if a, if a wife or, or partner is killed, you go to the other partner. You know what I mean? This, it's like – the, the rest of the family's got got alibis. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of kilometers away. Kilometers because we're talking Canada. Thank you um, so much. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, again, it just feels to me like in some ways that's more difficult, but in some ways it's a lot easier. She wasn't living in a bustling metropolis, but yet here we are. And it's still unsolved now, almost 40 years later, which is just so sad. And the fact that the whole family was rallying around a sick child and then while doing so, another child was murdered just feels truly so bleak. Manitoba, Tina Fontaine, another sad one. I mean, they're all sad, but but just the fact that, you know, she had left her mother, her father is killed. She's living a good life with her great aunt and uncle. Her father's death kind of unravels her, which, by the way, more than fair. I think oh, that... Yeah. That's completely a normal human response. Um, but the real point where this one got me, this one burned my ass, was, <laughs> thank you very much, she ran away, but the police didn't pay attention or take it seriously because, again, as we know, in general, we've heard this, not to bring up Gacy, which I've been referencing so often lately, but the it story- it, it did. Um, but the story in that case over and over again was these boys were going missing, these teenage boys were going missing, and the police kept saying, like, oh, he's just run away, he'll go home. This is a situation where the police had come across her when she had run away. Yep. And did nothing. And had it just been looked into with a very simple line of questioning... Again, like you're saying, putting it into a police computer, she could have been returned to her great aunt and uncle and potentially still lived. And that's so sad. I think maybe again, and look, I understand that the, the we're talking about uh, the manpower um, 
on on police forces and all of the above. But like, much like I always say, even if it's a suicide, let's treat the crime scene as though it's a murder, which I firmly yeah. stand behind. Oh, 100%. Wouldn't it be nice that if you came across a, a young gal, a, a 15-year-old gal, um, that you did your due diligence, really, really made sure that she wasn't in a bad way or potentially lying about what was going on with her or whatever? I'm not trying to blame, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, what would have happened if they took the time, found out that she was a runaway, and, you know, got her somewhere else? Got her somewhere else. Yeah. Well, in this case, would have saved a life. Yeah. Uh, Patty, Ontario. Shout out Etobicoke. I can't remember which documentary it was I was watching, but they kept pronouncing it Etobicoke. Ouch. It was Americans uh, oh, doing the documentary. Sure. So for those listening who are curious, the spelling is E-T-O-B-I-C-O-K-E. So it reads Etobicoke, but it is pronounced Etobicoke. And yes. uh, yeah, I can't remember the documentary I was watching, but they kept saying it over and over again. And it almost made me have to tune out because I was like, this is. And here's the thing. I know that a lot of times I will mispronounce the name of a place, something like that. Etobicoke is not just what locals call it. Etobicoke no. is just literally what it's called. That's just and the I know sometimes I don't, I don't pronounce something the way a certain lo- like a local would in a certain area. But that's because I'm not a local to that area. It's also why I say Toronto, right, instead of Toronto. Yeah. Toronto is accurate. Yep. But people who are very familiar with it, it's Toronto. So you just forget that second T even exists. You know yep. what I mean? It's not, we're not interested um, in it. It's just, it's just not there. But I'm not going to – if somebody wants to say Toronto, that is accurate. Yeah. Etobicoke is not. Yeah, it's not accurate. It's not. And it takes two seconds to, to – Well, it just – for me, it was like if you're watching a documentary where we are to believe that the case had been deeply researched, then – it's like you hadn't come across any news or anything that would have told you how to pronounce it. Like it just, you're researching also a case a week. Let's also remember this. So if the nuance of how something is pronounced isn't there, maybe it's because you're on a real timeline and you're doing what larger scale documentaries do uh, equally as well in months of time, months of I, research, years of research, all of the above. Christy gets like seven days, if that, maybe five. So um, that's the other thing to remember here, too. And to your <laughs> point, to your point, it's not a localism. It's just that it was sure. mispronounced. It's the way that the word is pronounced. So, yes. Um, yeah. If, I, if I'm not sure and I'm not familiar, I will specifically go hunt down videos I'm always looking for like a news story that outright mentions the word. Right. So I can hear how somebody says it or I will Google just literally the, in pronunciation to try and figure out how it's said. But And you're uh, doing that on with five days turnaround as opposed to a documentary that has months or years of time. It, that's my point. Sometimes the turnaround is is, is really short. And look, it, it's it's like a stab in the eye when I watch a documentary as part of the research. And they talk about how they've been researching it for years. And I'm like, what's that like? <laughs> I mean, it also, I mean, the time, I'm sure there's positive and negative. The same being buried in the same case for months and years would 
be so depressing, whereas it's depressing to have new cases <laughs> all the time because oh, yeah, you never have uh, the definition of shame. No same material. shit, different pot. Yeah, is that is that the expression? I believe it is. Okay, <laughs> we're we're gonna run with that. I'll look it up I, on the next break. I guess I just assumed it was same shit, different pile. I'm pretty sure it's pot. Believe it or not. Oh, like I, like you're shitting sure. in a pot. Like a like the the pot you put under the bed in the olden times, yeah. not like a pot you put on the stove. Correct. Got it. But I digress. We'll get back I'm into this in a minute. <laughs> Again, fuck. I said I wasn't going to talk about shit two weeks in a row. You know what? Don't fight. Uh, it. well, fingers crossed I don't go 3 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Patty Real. Um this one is very interesting to me. Because, uh, also, Casino Rama, love the, love the local references. Aurelia, that's a far drive, by the way, for people who are interested. Like, Etobicoke to Aurelia is ours. So if he was definitely at Casino Rama, yeah. then he definitely didn't personally commit the murder. But to that I say, when I think about giant landmarks that are drivable within that area, it would seem as though, I'm going to put it out there, maybe if somebody had hired a hit out on someone casino rama is far enough away that there's no way that you're gonna be you know what i mean i would like to know how often did he frequent casino rama yep. was there a specific like a special event happening that evening as to why he was there was he only there as a specific reason to have an alibi and shout out aurelia i used to live there way back in when did you 30. live in Aurelia? How do you know? <laughs> when I was like two. No, really? Didn't I? Yes. Oh, yes. I yes. When I'm did you go from Picton? I don't know. We're gonna get into this in the break. I, also, I, I'm fairly certain there were three small town Ontario before we did Swan River. Before Yorkton, Regina, Moose Jaw. Wow. Yeah. Have we it was ever talked about this? Picton, Aurelia, and Sterling. Well, Aurelia was out of the, that's out of the, that's no a ways. Kidding. Well, that, Picton to Sterling made sense because you were slowly moving. Sure. Wow. Okay. No, I'm, I'm sure you're not lying. Well, I, well I, no, you're going to love this. Now I'm like, well, my family talked about it so much. <laughs> Is it possible they lived there before I was born? That's possible. Because I swear that we did three moves in Ontario and then well, moved to Manitoba when I was like four-ish. And then to Saskatchewan. We're, again, we're going to, we'll get into this. You know, we're going to talk about this in the break. Um, <laughs> what I love is we've known each other for over 40 years. Yep. And I say, oh, this place, I lived there. And you're like, you did not. <laughs> I like Well, it, it just feels impossible that there's something I can still learn about you. But what's nice to know is that there is. Yeah. Always learning. Go. Always I like learning. Yep. Um, but yes, anyway, so my point is, is that Casino Rama feels like a real obvious destination if you want to make sure you have an alibi in the area. And it's far enough away 
that it's not one of those things where we talk about on this show sometimes about like, is there a timeline where the person could have gotten there and gotten back? You know what I'm saying? It's far enough away that it's like, if he's there, he's there. He didn't commit the murder. And also it's a place you can guarantee they're filming you. Exactly. And there's going to be footage of you being there. And the fact that he later uh, took his own life, mentioned Patty in the suicide note, but the police have never revealed the note. Why wouldn't you reveal the note unless there was something incriminating in it? And my next point would be, why wouldn't you reveal... I mean, I don't understand the inner workings, obviously, of how the uh, police work cases also. But to me, if you know that it was a hit, isn't there isn't there something to be gained by going public saying, we know this was a hit, i.e., we're on your tail, we're coming for you? We're not talking about a normal person, I'm assuming, where you don't want to reveal too much publicly because they could go into hiding, they could destroy evidence, sure. whatever. You're talking about a hitman. A contract yeah. killer. I just feel like, to me, it's like putting it out there that you're on to them could be helpful in the case. But again, what do I know? Um, And then Quebec, of course, Paul Frappier. Uh, I mean, how sad also this opening up for these big musicians, sounding like, you know, very talented, um, being found on the street, being found murdered on the street especially you know when there's no motive in sight there's no suspects chilling yeah it's unsettling it's unsettling not that it's ever more settling but i i with if there is a motive or suspects but i do feel like it feels like there's some kind of carriage of justice that's being at least attempted to happen um and again Crimes with no motive, first of all, rare. There usually sure. is a motive of some kind, even if it's just a crime of opportunity. There's at least some explanation. But when there's absolutely no explanation, that's the kind of stuff right? that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. Because then every moment is terrifying and every person is a horror show. Yes. Yeah. And who was he meeting? Yeah. Has that person been talked to? Did that person, was that person involved? Did that person get him, lure him out to an area? Right. Is it something to do with music? That they were taking down a rival or something? Right. Someone that they felt was getting more praise and was more talented than them. And if they just took them out, then their career would blossom or whatever. Like, Yeah, that's a good point, too. So many questions. Yeah. And unfortunately, not a lot of answers. But that's why we do what we do. We pose the questions, if nothing else. Yeah. I have a question for you. Why don't you hit the can one more time? How about getting another drink? And then we're going to come on back with (laughs) some more. Because we're not done yet, folks. More true crime on this True Crime Canada episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. 
It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing True Crime Canada. Little update for everyone. I have Googled same shit, different pot. <laughs> and I'll be honest, uh, a, lot, a lot of what's coming up is same shit, different day. Oh. And also same shit, different toilet. Uh, but then the expression that is coming up with pot is shit or get off the pot. So I think I may have kind of conflated two shit sayings. And then I created one and acted like it was the usual saying of same shit, different pile. <laughs> different pile. Pile is it's not anything I'm seeing coming up in my quick of research. But of course not. There you yeah. go. Also, I'm on my fourth high noon and I'm feeling like a loon. Um, <laughs> sorry. Okay. No, nope. we're, we're moving on to Newfoundland. Which I couldn't be happier about. Newfoundland La and Labrador. Thank you. So, Dana Nicole Bradley was born July 24th, 1967 in St. John's, Newfoundland. By the end of 1981, Dana was in the ninth grade at I.J. Sampson Jr. High. On December 14th, 1981... Dana went to a friend's house after school before heading home for her mother Dawn's birthday party. Dana left her friend's house on Curry Place and was last seen hitchhiking on Topsail Road. When Dana didn't arrive home, her family grew concerned and contacted the authorities, who told her an eyewitness saw Dana at 5.20 p.m. getting into a car with a male driver. Four days later, a family looking for a Christmas tree discovered Dana's body on Maddox Cove Road, a heavily wooded area south of the city, approximately 20 kilometers or 12 miles from where she was last seen. She suffered multiple blunt force skull fractures, and she had been sexually assaulted. Police say her body was laid out in a burial fashion, with her school books tucked under her arm, oh, which God. is chilling. Dana was just 14, at the time of her death, she was described as an artistic student who was always surrounded by a lot of friends. After Dana's death was announced in the local newspaper, two witnesses came forward to say they saw a man just off Maddox Cove Road on the night that Dana disappeared. A sketch was created of the suspect who was believed to have been a man in his mid-twenties. Despite the sketch being very detailed, police have never been able to identify the man. 
Hundreds of police were, uh, hundreds of people were interviewed, more than 800 vehicles were searched, and police investigated thousands of tips. The investigation into Dana's murder has been considered, quote, one of the most expensive and exhaustive murder investigations in Canadian history. A man was arrested in 1982 for making repeated harassing phone calls to Dana's family. The man was sentenced to nine months. Then in 1986, someone sent a note to the police claiming that David Grant Summerton was the killer. Police brought him in for questioning, and he confessed to Dana's murder. He was charged with first-degree murder, but soon recanted his confession, saying he had been coerced. It was found that confession came after 18 consecutive hours of investigation, or sorry, interrogation. Summerton also had a history of mental illness. With no physical evidence linking him to the crime, the murder charge against Summerton was dropped. However, for the false confession, he was charged with public mischief and sentenced to two years. Which, again, doesn't seem fair of his... If his confession was coerced. Yes. And then he gets sent to prison for two years for being coerced. For being interrogated for 18 hours. Yeah. Yeah. No, not. That's bullshit. Sorry. Dana's case is still considered to be active and police say they still receive about 50 tips a year about it. In 2014, a man named Robert came forward claiming he witnessed Dana's murder when he was just four years old. What? And that he had repressed the memory for decades. Robert said the car used in Dana's abduction belonged to Robert's father. However, uh, that day it was being driven by a family friend named Thomas Carey, who also happened to be a convicted pedophile. Robert claims that Dana had no problems getting into the car because Robert and his brother were in the back seat. He said Dana gave Carrie her home address and started to panic when he drove past it. Carrie drove to a wooded area where he hit Dana with a tire iron before putting her body in the trunk. Then Carrie drove out to Maddox Cove and left Dana's body there after washing her face and posing her, telling Robert and his brother that he hoped, quote, the young girl would wake up and go to school the next day. Jesus. Robert says the vehicle was then buried at a property in the Whitless Bay area. He claims he tried to come forward in 2011, but the RCMP didn't believe him. When he came forward again in 2014, police said his version of events were different from the information they had collected. In 2016, a Facebook group called Justice for Dana Bradley pushed to have two vehicles excavated from the Whitless Bay area. When police refused, the group hired their own forensic team to dig up the vehicles. However, it was determined neither vehicle could be used as evidence as they had been buried for too long and had degraded. However, it should be noted one of the vehicles that was found was one that had belonged to Robert's father. And look, I'll say kudos to that group for not saying police won't do it, we'll do it ourselves. Kudos to you for going around the right channels to make sure if an evidence is going to be found, it gets found legitimately. Yeah. That could be used. So kudos for that. 
In May 2016, the RCMP publicly stated that they had retested the DNA samples retrieved in Dana's case, and they had discovered DNA that pointed to an unknown male suspect. This allowed police to rule out two suspects who had previously been connected with the case, one of which was Thomas Carey. There is also a theory that Dana's disappearance is linked to the cases of three other women who went missing in St. John's between 1978 and 1984. 17-year-old Sharon Drover finished her shift at McDonald's on Kent Mount Road around 2 a.m. on December 29, 1978. She was reported missing 46 days later. In the early 90s, two brothers came forward claiming they picked up a female hitchhiker on Kent Mount Road the night that Sharon went missing, and they dropped her off at the corner of Longs Hill and Livingstone Street, where the boarding house Sharon was staying at was located. The brothers said the woman got into a heated discussion with someone near the front door of the house, and she took off running south down the street. In 1995, the new tenants of the boarding house were asked to leave so the floor could be ripped up, but no body or evidence was found. 25-year-old Henrietta Millick was last seen at the Key Club in the west end of Water Street on December 11, 1982. Henrietta's keys and purse were found at the club, and it is believed she likely left against her will. 20-year-old Pamela Asprey was having drinks with friends at a pub on Water Street November 12, 1984. After a few hours, Pamela left her wallet with a friend and said she'd be right back. Around 9.30 p.m., a witness saw Pamela get into a large, dark car with a male driver near the War Memorial on Duckworth Street, about 1.3 kilometers or 0.8 miles from the pub. Sharon, Henrietta, and Pamela have not been seen or heard from since. I'm not convinced that their cases are connected to Dana's, mainly because in the other three cases, no bodies have ever been found, Whereas with Dana, the killer displayed the body, clearly hoping that she would be found. Yeah. However, I do think it's possible that Sharon, Henrietta, and Pamela's cases are all connected. All three women were last seen within a mile of each other. I love that I've done this twice in one episode. Uh, two of which were last seen in pubs on Water Street. And if the witnesses were correct about Sharon Drover... She was last seen a few blocks from Water Street, and two of the women, Sharon and Pamela, were both living in boarding houses at the time of their disappearances. Is that somehow a connection? I don't know. It's possible the crimes were all committed by separate people. There's just a lot of coincidences, and apparently that's just what I'm doing in this episode. I love it. But as of April 2023, the cases of Dana Bradley, Sharon Drover, Henrietta Millick, and Pamela Asprey all remain unsolved. Next case is from New Brunswick. On November 14, 1993, the body of 17-year-old Marcel Cormier was found in his father's truck on a back road near St. Antoine, New Brunswick. Marcel had been shot. Marcel was last seen with his girlfriend, 14-year-old Marcia LeBlanc, but Marcia was nowhere to be found. Police quickly believed that someone had killed Marcel and abducted Marcia. Police searched the area, but came up empty. 
A week after Marsha's disappearance, police questioned 34-year-old Roger LeBlanc. As far as I can tell, no relation to Marsha. He was a person of interest at the time, as he was known to frequent an after-hours bar, which was near the crime scene. After his interview, Roger was released, and the following day, Roger disappeared. Some of Roger's belongings were found in the Canaan River area, but there was no sign of Roger. An extensive search was done of the area, but Roger was nowhere to be found. In October 1994, some bones, teeth, and a running shoe were found in a wooded area about 2 kilometers or 1.2 miles from where Marcel was shot. Testing determined the remains belonged to Marcia LeBlanc. Marcel and Marcia were described as bright kids who were full of life. Both were talented athletes, as Marcel played hockey and Marcia played baseball. As of April 2023, the case remains unsolved, and Roger has still never been found. Interesting. From Prince Edward Island, we have a popular teacher, Byron Carr, was last seen around 3 a.m. on November 11, 1988. 31 hours later, his body was discovered in the bedroom of his home on Lapthorne Avenue in Charlottetown, PEI, or Prince Edward Island, if you may. He had been stabbed and then strangled with a towel. Byron was 32 at the time of his death. He was described as an introvert who loved music, people, and throwing dinner parties. His time of death was determined to be between 3 and 9 a.m., on November 11th. Between midnight and 2.30 a.m., neighbors heard Byron's dog barking, which was unusual. There was also a report of a vehicle leaving the area at the time at a very high speed. The killer wrote a note on a bedroom wall that read, quote, I will kill again. Police believe that Byron was killed by a younger man after the two had consensual sex. Police had a DNA profile that they believe belongs to the killer. Police believe the killer was approximately 15 to 25 at the time of the murder, possibly a bisexual and a local who had a previous involvement with the police. A sketch was released of the potential suspect, but as of April 2023, the sketch has not been identified. Byron's case was reopened in 2007. Police announced they believe the killer returned to the scene that night with an accomplice to remove evidence. In 2013, they announced they knew who the accomplice was, but they chose not to release the name. They did, however, announce that the accomplice was 27 at the time of Byron's murder, a recent parolee with a violent criminal past, and that this person was on their original list of suspects back in 1988. Police say this accomplice died back in 2003, and that even if the man was alive, they wouldn't have had enough evidence to arrest him. Police believe the killer took this accomplice back to Byron's home after the murder to help search for the killer's underwear. They ended up leaving without it, as the police later found them. They were unable to find a DNA match, and all that was said publicly about the underwear is that they were Zeller's brand. Which I don't know how helpful that would have been, but... Police also managed to get DNA from the heel of a sock that was found at the scene, and the DNA was different from the DNA found 
on the underwear, so police believe the sock belonged to a third party. As of April 2023, Byron's case remains unsolved. And the final case that I bring for you today, and the end of the whole true crime tour in Nova Scotia. Shortly after 1 a.m. on August 28, 1999, recent high school graduate Jason McCullough left a house party on Joseph Young Street in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. He was heading to the home he shared with his parents on Russell Street, just over one kilometer or 0.6 miles away. To get there, Jason took a shortcut through a playground called Highfield Park, something he had done many times before. Around 1.30 a.m., Jason was shot in the back of the head at near point-blank range. People living in the nearby duplexes heard the shot and called police. At 2.30 a.m., Jason's body was found on the path less than six blocks from his home. Jason was just 19 at the time of his death. He was described as friendly, down-to-earth, and the sweetest guy you could meet. Jason volunteered as a leader with the Boys and Girls Club and as a chief scout for Scouts Canada. Jason wasn't robbed, so police struggled to find a motive or a suspect. They had very few leads, so the case moved slowly. In 2000, police released a sketch of five persons of interest who were seen in the area at the time of the murder. A local newspaper decided to print the names of the four men, which maybe wasn't legally the right thing to do, but who knows? Uh, Just hours before Jason's death, three of those five men broke into a home of an acquaintance a few hundred meters from the path where Jason's body was discovered. The men broke into the house, demanded money, and one even pulled a gun. The men got away with hundreds of dollars in cash, but were later arrested. They all pled guilty to the robbery. None of them have ever been charged in connection with Jason's murder. In April 2006, police announced that they received new information that a woman may have been present at Highfield Park on the night of Jason's murder, but with no leads, Jason's case stalled. Police believe that Jason's death was likely a case of mistaken identity or that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Police hope anyone who may have witnessed the crime will come forward to help give closure to Jason's family. In October 2004, Highfield Park was renamed the Jason McCullough Memorial Park. As of April 2023, Jason's case remains unsolved. And if any of our dear listeners has any information on any of the cases mentioned today, they can contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Shedding light on heartbreaking crimes, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow. My God, yeah. What a parade of sadness. Um, It is. is. All right. Newfoundland, going back to Dana Bradley. This is fascinating to me. Um, The false confession. Yeah. The man coming forward saying that he witnessed the murder when he was four. Now, listen, I have lots of memories when I was a very young child, but that is atypical. Not a lot of people do. But then the fact that he had specifics about the car and then the one car did turn out to be potentially corroborating his story. I mean, that's fascinating. 
Very fascinating. Um, now, it's also interesting that the DNA led to basically connecting three other women's deaths. That chain of events. Um, Henrietta, Pamela, and Sharon. Right. It does feel like they those three, to your point, have to be connected. Again, it's... What are the odds? The only thing I'll say, because I I know that the MO was different with Dana, but sometimes newish serial killers or spree killers, they do sometimes change their MO. It's not impossible. Um, It was chilling the concept of, oh, she'll go to, she'll go to school. She'll wake up and go to school. Oh, yeah. Because it almost feels like if that really happened, that that person might have really believed that, which speaks to a potential mental health issue also, uh, like a delusional issue. Um, So to that, I say, I do think it's plausible and possible that someone that would have that kind of MO in perhaps a altered delusional state could kill other people with a different M.O. Sure. It's also possible, too, that the other three, um, because the other three bodies were never found, correct? Right. It's also possible he could have done a ritual with them in a similar way or posed those bodies in a similar way, and then they were just never found. I love that I'm like, I don't want to rule out that the same person could be responsible for all four. Sure. You want to think I caught two serial killers in one episode. I do. I like that. I do. That's the truth. Um, okay, moving to New Brunswick, Marcel Cormier and Marsha LeBlanc. A lot of questions with this one. Was Marcel killed and Marsha taken? Was it a coincidence somehow? What would the motive be? I could understand in the dark true crime world we're in, somebody seeing this couple and being like, I'm going to kill him and take her. I can understand that as a motive for Marcel's death. But then it's like, again, we keep coming back to the same question that I think has come up so many times in this episode, which is, so is it just a random crime then? Was this somebody who was targeting you or following you? I don't know. I just, my thing is, you got on to this Roger character. Yeah. And you're like, we're going to question him. And then the very next day he takes off, never to be found again. It's like, I think we know we found our guy, right? Yes. If he gets questioned and then just disappears. Yeah. And the question is, when he was questioned, was she still alive? Great question. Because we don't know how long she was alive. I mean, that again, I agree. It just feels... I mean, it's exceptionally difficult to actually stage your own death or actually disappear with no one ever finding you in, you know, what are we looking at? 30 years? I mean, that is difficult and rare, but not not impossible. 
not sure. un, not unheard of. Let's put it that way. Um. Okay. PEI Byron Carr. This is interesting. I will kill again. The fact that it was a consensual sexual encounter between him and his killer, potentially. The killer leaving, coming back with an accomplice to find evidence. And then the sock found with DNA from a third party. So does that mean there's actually three people involved? Plus Byron? So the killer, an accomplice, and a second accomplice? Did the sock match the the first accomplice? I have a lot of questions here. Same. Obviously, um, a gay man in 1988, that's potentially going to be a tough, much like we were talking about indigenous women and not getting the attention and all of the above that they deserve. A, a gay man in 1988 could be the same kind of thing. How deeply was this looked into? The fact that they seem to know or claim to know who the accomplice is, the one accomplice is, but have never come forward. I'm skeptical. Oh, yeah, I have. It's, it's just for things to happen. I just can't believe that nobody saw or heard anything. Yeah. They heard the dog barking. Someone saw a car, heard a car. What are more details about the car? Yeah. And also, why are you not publicly? You said we figured out. Who one of the like who the accomplice was? Okay, great. Why aren't you telling us who it is? And that's the thing. I just feel like with some of these cases where we're talking 30, 40 years, why not throw it out in the wind at some yeah. point? You know what I mean? Like we talked about this in reference to Delphi. I remember we had this conversation many times where it was like that investigation was so ongoing for so long, and they kept o- openly outwardly saying, we have all this information, but we're keeping it close to the chest. Yes. And we said so many times when we've talked about that case that it's like, we get it. Certainly in the first certain amount of time, you don't want to in any way, you know, compromise an investigation by revealing too much publicly. Got sure. it. But the point that, again, and this is the the, the part of the like psychology of detectives and and police investigations that I don't understand the nuance of, obviously, is what point does it turn into, but isn't it a tactic or a move to reveal something publicly? Because again, it's like when something feels like it's stalling for many years and you're claiming we have this huge piece of information, it just makes it seem like you're lying if you don't eventually come forward with something publicly. Sure. You know? And this is another one of those cases where it's like, if you knew for sure who this accomplice was and you're not coming forward with it, have you questioned that person? Has that person come in and spoken to you? Does that person know that they are apparently this person of interest? Well, and the fact that the person has died, why aren't they announcing who they are publicly? Is there a rule about Release? not speaking will of the, ill of the dead or something? Release the sketch and the name of the accomplice, and anyone who knows the accomplice might have seen him with whoever the killer was. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, confounding. And finally, rounding the horn, bringing it home, Nova Scotia, Jason McCullough, um, shot in the back of the head at point blank range, 19. This is also like Nova Scotia, very quaint. This does not feel like the vibe of Nova Scotia. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 murders can happen anywhere. Don't get me wrong. But but uh, execution style murder? Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, does it feel like this group of of boys that did a essentially did a home invasion nearby with a gun that night would be that would definitely be the place I'd start. Yeah. Um as well as just what's the motive? Uh it feels like could be misadventure, could be again some sort of spree type crime. This group of 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 kids getting high on pulling off a home invasion, whatever, do they then go and shoot somebody that they come across? I mean, that seems plausible to me. Again, it's just, it's so hard to believe that these children, for lack of a better term, these 15, 17, 19-year-old kids, like, what is the motive for these kids, really? Like, to, to, to do an execution-style murder? My God, it just feels so... I don't know. Uh, misaligned with teenagers. Yeah. You know? And I also love that it's like new evidence. Maybe there was a woman present. Okay, fine. This is another case to me where it happened in 1999. Let's let's get into it then. Bring something else forward then. We're, we're however many years, we're 20, 30 years later. Come on. It's yeah, time. If you know, like, if you know something else about the woman. Right. Let us know. Fill us in. Um, but listen, Christy Oxborough, what a fantastic episode you have put together. I mean, the amount of research, the amount of cases, the fact that you took us from one end of the country to the other. It's truly impressive. And I cannot understate enough or rather, I cannot overstate enough Um Truly, the, your level of work never ceases to amaze. You are uh, too kind. I'll say it. I mean, it's it's dark and it can be heavy. Um, but there's something I liked about uh, crossing Canada. Yeah. It was nice. I love that. And for those keeping track at home for how I like to keep track of where I've done cases and where I haven't, I'm not, I'm not considering this. I've done every one in Canada so far. I'm pushing myself to the limit of I have to do at least half an episode or more in a specific place to count it. Wow. I'm a psychopath. I love it. I love that for you. <laughs> and it should also be noted, you've been doing the missing series of episodes. This also is not one of those episodes. This is this is Correct. its own thing. Um, yeah. Because there was a missing... Some, some are missing. Right. Some bodies were found. Like, missing I try and focus on Missing have not been found. Right. No sign of. Whereas this was, there are some of that in here and some of them murders, kidnappings, all of that. I tried to just go for unsolved and in in Canada, really. Well, focus. it was a fabulous episode. I never had any doubt, but also I, it never ceases to amaze me how you continue to impress me. And I thank you for your work. Oh, well, I'm too deep into <laughs> 
into this to not get emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I'm finishing my fourth high noon and we're about to record a bonus episode of the show and it's only going to get sloppier. So um, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. If you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails on Twitter at Not Detectives. And that bonus episode I just referenced is going to be over on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. Go over there for all kinds of bonus content that we love to provide uh, on a subscription-based service. So check that out if you're interested. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Mary Schley. I look forward to that as I look forward to every week on this show. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Happy birthday, Paul Rudd. Good night, my ever-aging vagina. <laughs> <laughs>